I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Hello, everybody. This is episode 82 of the Intercooler Podcast. Um, and... I suppose we don't really need a reason, do we, Andrew, to talk about Porsche 917s? They're just no, interesting there's enough. No, there, there's, there's no anniversary, there's no hook, there's no special announcement for a Porsche. We're just going to do it. Yeah, um, we're just, we're just going to do it. I think uh, there, is, um, there are a couple of reasons, though, why we're doing it now. Because last week we did uh, car films and motorsport films. Yeah. And we spoke about yeah. the film Le Mans, the, the McQueen film Le Mans, and 917s do feature. So that might have sort of spark this idea although there is an, an anniversary that we can hang this off i mean we don't always need anniversaries to give us a reason to talk about a particular topic but a couple of days ago it was the 50th anniversary of joseph at death wasn't it and he he raced oh, 917s yes well okay fine yes that, that, that is a, <laughs> as good a reason as you need to talk about 917 i i hadn't um appreciated that fact i'm afraid um but yes absolutely so that's you know absolutely and it's actually i only mention it because his funeral cortege was led by 917 there you go uh before we do start talking about 917s though i just want to spend a couple of minutes talking about the film grand prix because last week you declared it one of your favorite films i had to confess that i and hadn't that I seen couldn't it believe you hadn't seen it yeah so i i promised that i'd put it right and i did i did yeah. watch it over the weekend um and it was brilliant, really enjoyable. Yeah, um, good film. Yeah, it's so it has that at that point. It has that sort of lovely slow pacing of films of that era that you just don't really get now, um, and some fairly ropey acting at points. Yeah, but some amazing <laughs> cinematography. Well, that's what I was going to say. The race sequences, I, j- I couldn't believe how evocative they were, how immersive they were. Um, so much better than anything you'd get now because you'd never have a long lingering shot from the front of one car looking at another as they're herring around at 150 whatever um, and you know that that shot will last 10 seconds or something you can imagine it, it, in a comparable film today it would be chopped together multiple times lots of cuts lots of edits there'd be music going you wouldn't hear the cars you wouldn't get an impression of the speed um I'd, and I also those, those sort of shots you get of you know sort of rev counters flicking up and down. Well, I mean, no one would be would even be allowed to look into the um, 
you know, the cockpit of a modern Formula One car and, you know, um, Venturi opening in, you know, in, in, in intake trumpets and, and, and all that sort of thing. Just that, that really loving detail. I mean, to me, it's almost shot as a, it looks almost like somebody has decided to do a retrospective on these amazing race cars. But of course, at the time, they're all brand new, weren't they? Um, and there's a, but there's a love for the machinery in that film that it's hard to feel for modern cars, aren't they? Which are just, and you, and you kind of think that even back then, people just, because they were so beautiful and because they sounded so amazing and because they were driven by genuine heroes, none of those things being true today, um, that there was a love and a reverence um, for the machinery itself um, that simply doesn't exist anymore because I mean, however fast and amazing modern Formula One cars are, they are just devices for carrying their drivers around the tracks. Um, and they, you know, I'm sure the people who create them love them. But as us, as looking on, we don't look at a modern Formula One car and go, oh my God, that's the most beautiful thing. Or listen to that Formula One car. All we think is, gosh, that's fast. And yeah, that's what I love about that film is even when they were making it in period, there was this adoration of the subject. Yeah, somehow they knew, didn't they? Um, And you really get to see what tracks like Monaco, Bransach, Spa, Zandvoort and Monza were like at the time. Um, in a way that you just don't from, uh, well, still images or perhaps if you could find the, te- the television footage from the day, I don't know. But you just, you get such a sense of how the circuits have changed, what they looked like then, what the challenge was like back then. Um, Monaco, I mean, th- the place is a concrete jungle, isn't it? But back in the 60s, it actually looked quite beautiful. Um, and I, I just loved seeing places like Monza with the banking, um, the old spa. It was it was brilliant to really get a feel for for what those places were actually like back then. And, and they, they actually entered, I think Phil Hill, okay, he wasn't quite retired, but he wasn't racing in Formula One anymore. But they entered him into the 1966 Belgian Grand Prix just to get that footage. And so that amazing footage when they're all piling off the start. Um, is you know that's 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 real stuff. You know, that was done by a very brave bloke who got back into a Formula One car after being out for a while. Um, and sort of haired round and got all that stuff. It's, um, you know, it was all, you know, it was all done properly. It was all done at real racing speeds because they couldn't do it anyway. They didn't have any green screens or CGI or anything. They just had to get on and do it. The, there were a couple of crash sequences, which are actually quite frightening. Um, yeah. And you sort of get a bit of an understanding of how attitudes towards death in motorsport have changed over the years. Um, particularly Scott Stoddard's crash. Um, quite early on in Monaco, he, you really see, well, it's not him obviously, but you see, um, perhaps it's a doll or whatever, but you see that doll really being flung around um, when the car crashes. And then there's, there's just a shot of him sort of unconscious in the car, bloodied and bruised, looking in a terrible shape. And actually that is quite shocking because I suspect it's quite an authentic depiction of, of what happened. I mean, it's 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 absolutely, um, you know, the tales of the safety or lack of safety, or, and and how cavalier um, people were about life back in the day, and how difficult it was to get the correct medical treatment. I mean, you know, I'm just trying to think of very examples. Uh, there was a bloke who crashed at Spa in 1960s. One of the tailors, Michael Henry, can't remember which one, but one of them. Um, it took them 40 minutes to find him. Because it was such a long lap. No one saw him go off because there were so few marshals around. He'd had a, he'd had a, he'd, he had a career-ending injury, okay? And he'd gone so far 
that by the time you know the car didn't come round, the, the guys in the pits thought, oh, maybe we missed him. So they wait another lap, and he still doesn't come round. They thought, oh shit, he's gone off somewhere. Well, we haven't heard anything. Um, and then they start looking for him. And, it, you know, it literally... And, it, and this poor bloke is lying there in the wreckage, you know, terribly injured. And no one's coming. And that's what it was, you know. And also, you know, if you had... Um, you know, there was that awful, awful accident at Monaco in 67 where Lorenzo Bandini overturned his Ferrari and it caught fire. And they kept racing. He was in the car. It was on fire. It was upside down. Um and oh, you know, think about how he suffered. And eventually they got to him and they put it out. Um, and, you know, there are people taking photographs all over the place. And, you know, and they get And, you know, and I think he lived for about three days after that. Um, and before uh, finally succumbing to his injuries. And, you know, you just think about how he must have suffered. And it's, I mean, it's beyond my, I don't choose to think about it, actually. It's, uh, it's, it's just too horrendous for words. But, that was kind of like it like back then. It was it had this sort of gladiatorial quality to it, and you know people just didn't take that side of things remotely safe um, seriously. And yeah, you get what you get. Yeah, and you do get an impression of that from this film Grand Prix. So yeah, I mean it's it's definitely worth watching. I watched it on Amazon. Um, Amazon Prime is very easy to find. Uh, it is worth watching, but yeah, you some of it is fairly eye opening. I have to say. Um, Okay, but we're actually talking about 917s, aren't we? Um, and Yes, and there's obviously a film link there to the McQueen movie, so beautifully yeah. done, if I may say so. Well, thank you very much, as if it was planned. Um, so, I mean, really, the 917 is most famous, isn't it, for giving Porsche its, most, its first outright wins at Le Mans, 1970, 1971. Um, but it's, I, I think it is one of the great um, endurance racing cars, isn't it? Maybe the great one. Um, it's... It's sort of celebrated in a way that I'm just not sure that modern, modern day uh, endurance races ever will be. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Back in the day, and I'm talking 20-something years ago when I was the editor of Motorsport, um, we just wanted to poll. Um, we didn't put it out to the public for some reason, but we, 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 we just got hold of as many people whose opinions we trusted and respected. Um, so there were a lot of racing drivers. I mean, Bernie did it, Ron did it. I mean, lots of you know eminent names, a few scumbag journalists like me, um, and, and 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 we just had to name the world's greatest racing car ever. Didn't specify a formula, whether you know whether it be a single seater or a sports car or, or or anything else. And the 917 won it. So you know, twenty something years ago, and in the eyes of those people who were a fairly eminent bunch. The 917 was it. Of all racing cars, it was the greatest racing car that had ever been devised. And I think for all sorts of reasons, um, I think because it was so successful um, on both sides of the Atlantic, so it, had, it obviously went on to have this career in Can-Am after it stopped being a sports car. I think the reason, the reason for its creation um, is itself is, is, is a fairly extraordinary story. And obviously... The car itself, just how much faster it was than anything else out there, um, and 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 also I think that there is a romance to it because of just how ridiculously brave you had to be to even sit in the thing um, and head out around a racetrack with all those other lunatics. So, and, and, and I think it's a gorgeous-looking car too, and I think it's a car that just has so many stories. I mean, <clears throat> talk about podcast. I mean, I could do a pod week on this thing um, because I just don't think. Um, 
we've ever seen anything like it uh, before or since. So where do we begin then? Um, should we go back to the middle of 1968 when Porsche uh, started developing this thing? Yeah, I mean, can we talk a bit about how it even got to exist? Because, I mean, the, the point being was that the rules were redrafted in such a way to ensure that such a car could never exist. Because, you know, cars were, you know, with things like um, the Ferrari P4, and particularly the 7-litre GT40, which were, you know, pure prototypes made by, you know, the handful because they were so expensive and they were so fast um, and, you know, people were having bigger and bigger accidents. More and more lives were being lost. Um, and the rule makers just said, enough, enough, okay? Let's, you know, we're, we're going we're, we're gonna to stop this stuff. So they're going to say, okay, fine. So you can still make prototypes. That's absolutely fine. But if you make a prototype, um, you've got a three-litre engine capacity. So that'll slow you down. So none of this seven litre nonsense. Um, and if you don't want to play that game, that's absolutely fine. Um, you can build a car with uh, a five litre engine, but you're going to have to make 25 of them. So, you know, that's not, you say, so, so you're not, you're not going to build 25 prototypes and that'd be ridiculous. So that's the end of those really, really fast cars. And Ferdinand Pieck at Porsche just thought, Sodom, we'll build 25. We'll just do it and we'll sell them. Um, and that's how the 917 came came into being. And there's that amazing photograph uh, of the day the FIA came to inspect. And there are 25 917s in a line. I don't think the FIA quite realised. there. Were, I mean, I, th- I can't remember how many cars that were actually sort of capable of moving under their own steam were in that photograph. Because I, th- I think the vast majority of them had literally just been thrown together. And were, as soon as they'd taken the photograph and the FIA had gone, they were taken to bits again and rebuilt the sort of proper racing cars. But nevertheless, they showed that they could do it. And this, at that stage, they had no choice. They had to let them race. Um, and Ferrari um, saw this too late and thought, shit, I've got to do something about this. Um, and came up with the 512S, which against anything else would have been the greatest racing car of its era. But because they were reacting to a situation that was pre-existing, they didn't have the time. And you know, they came up with a car which was less powerful, which was heavier, um, less good. And the 917, off it went. So let's talk about some of the more interesting technical aspects, but also the people involved. You mentioned Ferdinand Pieck, um, who sort of <clears throat> oversaw the whole thing. Um, Hans Mesger, chief engineer. Amazing, actually. It, it, there's a, such a lovely connection there. Anyone who's got a sort of early-ish 911 GT3 or GT3 RS with a Mesger engine in it, the bloke who did the engine in your car did the 917. It's, it's just a cool connection, isn't it? Something to be proud of if, you happen, if you're lucky enough to own one of those cars. Um, and so who else were the significant people involved? Pierre and Mezger, but I mean, there must have been Yeah, but there was also, you know, it was, it was also, it was basically, it was the first job that uh, Norbert Singer had at Porsche too. I mean, he was pretty junior and I think he was working on, um, on the transmission at the time. But, you know, um, yeah, he was, he, he was there too. I mean, it was just this extraordinary brains trust, wasn't it, of the most amazing engineers um, with an attitude which was, you know, we'll do the impossible because if we do the possible, we'll do something that's been done before. We don't want to do that. Um, and, you know, it, it was also, it was a very pragmatic card. It's another thing that I don't think people appreciate um, is they had so little time 
they didn't have a huge amount of money. So, you know, they took their 908, which was, you know, a very good car in its own right and had won all sorts already. Um, you know, Daytona 24 hours and so on and so forth. Um, and they took that gorgeous flat eight engine um, and they literally just added a cylinder to each corner um, and created um, the flat 12. But even then, and it gives you some idea of the limitations they were working under. You know, you could run, you could have a car of five litres. Well, they didn't because if you, you know, you have a three litre of eight cylinder engine and you add um, a cylinder to each corner, that gives you four and a half litres. So the early 917s were four and a half litre cars because they had the same bore and stroke as the 908. Um, you know, with a car like that, you want to have four valves per cylinder, obviously. Well, they couldn't because they were air cooled. Um, and there wasn't enough space um, to cool the engine properly if you had four valves per cylinder, so they had to have two valves per cylinders. Um, you know, Porsche only got around sorting that problem out with the 956 in the 1980s when they finally went to water-cooled heads. Um, and so, you know, they had an engine which wasn't as big as it could be. It didn't have as, as, uh, the number of... It had half the number of valves it probably should have had, and it still had more power than anything else out there. You know, Ferrari had the full five-litre engine, um, and the Porsche was, from the outset, with four and a half litres, significantly more powerful. Um, and, of course, the car was made out of this tiny lattice flame, a sort of spidery space frame, which weighed nothing. 42 kilograms, apparently. Yeah. Which is, re- that really is nothing. Yeah. And they put this fiberglass skin over the top, which in spaces is less than a millimetre thick. Um and so, yeah, and, 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 and off they went. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was quick from the outset. It wasn't that quick from the outset because it was, so, it was almost impossible to drive. Um, so in 1969, I mean, the Ferrari didn't come out until 1970 because, as I said, they were reacting to it. So in 1969, um, the absolute truth is the Porsche drivers of the era didn't want to drive it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so hang on, we'll come to that in just a sec. But it's, it's worth mentioning that <clears throat> it did use some exotic materials, uh, t- titanium, magnesium alloys as well, um, to make it as light as possible. Now, th- it was quite a compact car with an enormous engine behind the, the cockpit. And it meant that the drivers had to sit a long way forward. Perhaps one of the reasons why some of them weren't too keen on it. I mean, w- yeah, when we talk about the weight of the, the, the chassis, I mean, that's, clearly it's a good thing from a performance point of view. But when you look at how spindly it is, where the driver's feet are, forward of the front axle line, um, I mean, it is extraordinary that anyone chose to actually race that thing at any great speed because it's just not going to survive a big accident, is it, that car, that, that chassis? Usually there's a little panel which you can unscrew at the front. And if you, if you take a bit of bodywork off, you can look down and you will see this tiny tiny tube of space frame and then behind that are the pedals and behind that are the feet and that is literally all you have between you i mean it's, it's almost like a coat hanger and you know and so they so they learned very quickly and they did specific they, they went out specifically to achieve you know, they, if they were going to go off and they suddenly in that moment racing drivers can do this and when they think okay i'm gonna crash what are my options? Um, they they learnt to go in backwards, um, and you know, and, and that was a specific thing with the nine one seven because they knew that if they went in forwards, um, at the very best, you know, they weren't going to come out of that with a career anymore. Uh, and so that's what happened. Um, it was 
<laughs> just doesn't bear thinking about does it in these uh, no. in, in these super safe days no and sadly people did lose their lives in 1917s didn't they well in 1969 um yeah john wolf lost his life um but that was a you should, you should even say uh, briefly um Porsche go to Le Mans in 1969, they have one privateer car, which is owned by this um, British driver called John Wolfe. Um, and, you know, he shouldn't have been in the car. The car was too undeveloped. It was too unstable. Um, he frankly wasn't a good enough driver. So uh, he was he was going to share, this is a, an interesting story. Uh, he was going to share it with um, a chap called Digby Martland. Um, Digby happens to be an old family friend of mine. Um, and he was a he was a fantastic driver. He was really good at racing chevrons and that sort of thing. Uh, and so his mate invites him to come and drive this nine seventeen thing at the mall. And Digby goes out and it in um, it was practice or qualify. But the car is so unstable at over two hundred miles an hour, he spins it down the mall sound straight, and somehow doesn't connect with anything. Um, gets it back to the pits, gets out of the car, and says to John Wolfe. I'm never going to drive this thing again. And if you've got any sense, you won't either. Um, and he left. And Richard Atwood, um, you know, obviously the bloke who won the more in 917 the following year, has always said he thought that was one of the bravest things he ever saw any he ever saw any racing driver ever do, just to accept that this was beyond you and to get out and walk away. I'm not sure Digby raced really very much at all after that. Um, and sadly, John Wolfe said, well, it was his car and it was a Le Mans and he was going to have his moment in the sunshine. And so Porsche um, gave him um, Herbert Linger, um, who was the factory test driver, massively experienced racing driver. Uh, and they begged him to let their driver take the start. But John Wolfe said, no, because the car might break. And then I went to race my 917 at Le Mans, so I will take the start. And so off they all hair at the, at, at the start. And he, he never came back, didn't make it around the first lap. Lost control at White House, massively fast corner, not on the circuit anymore, and that was that. They just saw the smoke curling up from the horizon. Terrible. Bloody hell. Yeah, that is terrible. Um, so, I, yeah, you've touched on it. But the, the, the car became enormously successful and almost unbeatable. But to begin with, it was anything but. And the guys just didn't like the car, did they? In the, the podcast that you did, the TI Super Podcast for app subscribers only that you did, with Richard Atwood, <clears throat> he says that they were they were leading Le Mans in '69, but he hated the car so much he was delighted when it broke. He said he'd never been happier in his life. Twenty-one hours in, they were leading by a ridiculous amount, laps and laps and laps. No one else anywhere near him, and it breaks. And he is just—he's deaf. He has um, a, a headache which would last for days. He's exhausted. He's terrified because the thing is going down the straight like this. He says he, he, he could sit in that car and look in the mirror at 200. I mean, they, it would do back then with the long tail at 969. It would do about well, late 230s down the straight. Um, and he could see the horizon moving in the mirror as the back of the car came off the ground. And then you get wheel spin <laughs> at 200 and whatever it was. Um, and... You know, Vic Elford always said that he he enjoyed driving that car, and I think that I think that Richard is fairly um, what's the word? Um, I don't know. I'm not sure that I, I, I think Richard probably thinks that Vic is being um, you know a, a slightly revisionist in his, in, in his thinking there, but maybe not. But anyway, um, yeah. I mean, the car was an absolute nightmare. <clears throat> I mean, it was unbelievably fast, but it was almost uncontrollable. 
Um, uh, aerodynamically then, unstable, wasn't it? That was the key thing. Yeah, but, but Porsche didn't realise it because the computers were so primitive at the time. They thought the problem was um, in the suspension. Um, and, and it wasn't. Um, and it was only when it got sorted out over the winter of 1969 to 1970. Uh, and as Richard would tell you, it went from being the worst racing car he'd ever driven to the best racing car he'd ever driven literally over the course of a winter break and then in 1970 it, it comes back and off you go and those 1970 cars look very different to the 69 car don't they yeah you can, you can see yeah. it in images they they change so much over that winter well they didn't have um a short tail in 1969 so you so you know b- back then cars used to race with long tails or short tails depending on the circuit was so if you hit the nurburgring you obviously you'd have a short tail because you want the downforce uh, such as it was back then um and uh at places like Le Mans, you would tend to go for the long tail because you just want top speed um and they actually the sort of about so even the long tail in 1970 was stable uh, in a way it simply hadn't been in 1969 but yes i mean the cars the, the, the bodywork changed dramatically but some drivers i mean you know richard atwood won Le Mans in 1970 with a short tail car um because he just wanted the most stable platform um he could uh, i suspect because he'd been scared witless the year before um and because the weather was so bad um and because there was so much attrition he still won the race um you know in a car you know and that then they had by then they had five liter engines and they had five speed gearboxes and he went no i'll have a four and a half liter engine i'll have a four liter gear i'll have a four speed gearbox and i'll have a short tail so basically he optimized his car well no, he de-optimized his car he basically went out and raced the worst 917 you could possibly get for doing the more in it and he still won it yeah <laughs> amazing isn't it really um okay I, I i should have mentioned earlier just an interesting detail of this car so the the space frame chassis was always pressurized with gas and there's a little dial isn't there somewhere on the chassis so that uh, yeah i think only, i think it was only in the early cars they used to do is that this. Right? yes mm. yeah so and, and why why do they pressurize it well, so that if, if it loses pressure, they know there's a crack yes. in, the, in the chassis. Yes, which, which isn't terribly reassuring, <laughs> is it? You kind of think that you'd want a chassis which wasn't going to crack. It's going to crack, yeah. You shouldn't yeah, need that did. feature. You, yeah, you had this big gauge and it was like that. And, the moment, you know, and then it was, and if you sort of looked up and it had done that, mm. um, yeah, it, it was Stop. time to go into the pit. <laughs> oh, crikey. Can we just, can we put this right once and for all? Are we calling yeah, it 917 or 917? That seems to care. change a lot. No, <laughs> I just don't care. I, 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 you know, I think I use both. I think I probably use both during the course of this podcast. Um, I tend to say normally say nine one seven, but I don't. I don't yeah, um, I'm. I'm not. Um, it's not like sort of nine eleven and nine one one. I mean, no one would say nine one one, would they? Because um, it doesn't trip off the tongue the same way. But um, I, you know, what do I think? I think Porsche. Yeah, Porsche nine one. I, I think actually, I think I used to say nine one seven. I probably say nine seventeen now, but. I don't care. <laughs> no, it doesn't matter, does it? It's not important. Um, okay, so, yeah, the car was developed a lot for 1970. Won Le Mans in 70 and 71. Um, so, huge success. It's winning elsewhere. Where should we go from here? I mean, should we talk about some of the variants? Should we skip across the Atlantic and talk about Can-Am? Um, I, we, well, we, have, we, we definitely have to talk about um, Can-Am. I mean, I think... So, so the political situation on the ground at the time is interesting because obviously having gone so far out of its way to make sure that a 917 or 917 couldn't get built and the car getting built anyway i mean you know the fia 
was it the CSI at the time? But one became the other, doesn't matter. Um, you know, the rule makers, they still, you know, the fundamental problem didn't just remain, it was getting worse. You know, these cars were still getting faster and faster and faster. Um, and so they had to, you know, and Porsche would have known this from the start, they had to find a way to um, to outlaw these cars. And it took them two seasons to do it, but eventually they just said, uh, right, three litres, that's it. You know, forget the 25 car rule. You literally can't um, race um, any kind of prototype with more than uh, a three litre capacity. And that really was the end of the 917. But by then, um, the only places it didn't, um, it didn't race uh, successfully were at the Nürburgring on the Targa Florio. Um, but Porsche had the 908 for that. So, you know, um, so it was, you know, so obviously Porsche won the World Sports Car Championship in both those years, in 1970 and 1971. But you have to remember, uh, it wasn't all the 917. Uh, the 908 did the the races on the, you know, on, on the the more fiddly circuits um, they did do some simulations between the 908 and the 917 at the Nürburgring and actually the lap times came out remarkably similar um, but the difference was you know the drivers of the 917s aged 10 years during the course of the race whereas the guys in the 908 had a really nice time so um, you know and frankly it was just more likely that you get a 908 to the end of it um, than a 917 so you know they did go at it um, with both um with both cars. Also, Ferrari is interesting because Ferrari, um, and also how Porsche managed to completely screw with Ferrari's heads. Um, Ferrari obviously realized from the outset that the 512S just wasn't as good as the 917. It only won one race at one Sebring in 1970 with Mario Andretti driving, and that's because all the 917s retired. That's the race in which Steve McQueen came second. Um, driving with Peter Revson and Revson did almost all the driving and McQueen took almost all the credits and I can get quite old-fashioned about that but anyway um, Ferrari realized they obviously needed to do something about this um, and so they produced a car called the 512M for Modificato um, which was kind of the car the 512S should have been from the start um, and it could have been an amazing car um, they only went head-to-head -head once I think it was in Austria and the Ferrari beat the Porsche on merit. But by that stage, um, the organisers had already announced this three-litre formula. Um, and Ferrari were just piling everything into that. Because, unlike Porsche, um, Ferrari already had a three-litre engine because they were doing Formula One. So it was very easy for Ferrari to adapt their F1 engine and have a three-litre engine and continue sports car racing. And in 1972... After Porsche left sports cars racing, the 1972 World Championship had 11 races in it. Ferrari won 10 and didn't enter the 11th. So that gives you an idea. So that's why Ferrari... But in the meantime, um, yeah, the 512M... So Ferrari abandoned the 512M, which was such a shame because I think that could have, it could have been the most fantastic battle in 1971 with the 970s. But the, the other thing that Porsche did was they were thinking about... Um, what they could do in Can-Am because you needed much more power than the 917 had to do Can-Am. Um, and one of the ideas that they had was um, producing a flat 16 engine. Um, and so they published a photograph of their flat 12 engine with their flat 16 engine next to it. But they scaled down the flat 16 engine to make it look like the same. it was physically the same size as the flat 12. And made Ferrari think they'd done a five-litre 
flat 16, which they could go sports car racing with, which they absolutely couldn't. It was only ever going to be a flat Can-Am engine. And I think that made Ferrari think, oh, well, we've just got no hope against that. So we'll, so we'll just give up 1971 and we'll, and we'll concentrate on three-litre cars. So Ferrari, so, so Porsche effectively fooled Ferrari into thinking they had an engine which, which well, I mean, the, the, although the engine ran, it never raced. Um, and if even it had raced, it would only have raced in Can-Am. But Ferrari didn't know that at the time. So um, that was a bit of smoke and mirrors from Porsche there, which was, which, which was very clever. Yeah, Great story. That, that is brilliant. Yeah. So after it stopped racing in Europe, it had a career over the pond, across the pond, didn't it? Um, they took the roof off it, put two turbos on it? Uh, yeah. Um, so Joe Siffert had, um, had always been banging on about Can-Am. Um, and he'd gone over there. They had, he had a thing called the PA Spider, um, which was actually, that was the car that they put the flat 16 in into, and he tested it and everything else, but it never raced. Um, but he'd done Can-Am with the PA Spider with a normal flat 12 in it, and, and he'd done quite well at times, but the car just didn't have the power. Um, but he was convinced that a 917 with you know, the power to combat, particularly the McLarens, things like the M8, D and the MAF um, could have been, um, you know, where Porsche needed to go next. And also, Porsche didn't like being told what to do, you know, what it could and couldn't race in. So they just thought, well, if we can't race um, in the World Sports Car Championship, well, sod you, we'll go and do Can Am instead. And so, but, but the problem was that even um, in full sort of five litre, um, five plus litre capacity, 917 probably didn't have more than about you know, 630, 640 horsepower. Um, whereas the McLarens were knocking up around, you know, 800, 850 horsepower with their monstrous 9.2 litre Chevy V8s. Um, so Porsche needed, you know, an awful lot of power from somewhere. And they investigated two routes. One was the flat 16 and the other was this newfangled technology called turbocharging. Um, and as soon as they turbocharged what they already had and saw the results... Um, they knew that was that was the way to go. I mean, it wasn't the matter of the moment because you know the technology was in its infancy, um, and you could imagine what those early nine seventeens. Uh, so they created a thing called the nine seventeen ten, um, which you know eventually went on to have a thousand horsepower. Um, but you know, in this you know in the in this car with this very short wheelbase um, and you know pretty much. An on-off throttle response. Uh, it must have been impossible to drive, or very, very difficult to drive. Um, but yeah, the moment the 91710 came along, um, the McLaren era of total domination. McLaren had dominated Can-Am almost since its inception. Didn't win the first year. Lola won it in '65, I think '66. Anyway, uh, but after that, McLaren just, you know, just literally just dominated everything. Um, and Porsche came along and ended that. Um, and the 91710 won almost everything in uh, 1972. And then they created the 91730, which had even more power. <laughs> um, but, 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 but more significantly, it had a longer wheelbase. So it was actually a much easier car to drive. Um, and yeah, it won every single race. Mark Donahue. Um, and, and that pretty much killed Can-Am. Because again, you know, the 917 had got so fast um that people were just thinking well what's the point and so you know it, it didn't kill world sports car racing you know they had to get rid of the 917 but in Canada, it basically and it did carry on for a bit after that but it was never the same again after the 91730 um you know 1100 horsepower and you know just 
hours faster than anything else out there. Bloody hell. God, I can only imagine what that feels like. Although, you know what that feels like. So just to round things I, up. I have an idea. Yes, I have an idea. But <laughs> I think I've hanged on about driving that car for yeah, on this but podcast just, in the past. Just to wrap things up then, can we very briefly talk about the 917s that you have driven? Uh, 970s, all those 970s, I've driven two. Um, so I drove, uh, but, 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 but they are, funnily enough, they are the sort of two poles of um, the sort of 917 um, era. So I drove, Richard Atwood let me drive his car, um, which looked like the Le Mans winner. Uh, it wasn't, um, it was the next chassis along. Um, and it had spent most of its life. Well, it was a camera car for Le Mans, but this was, but it, this was to absolutely 1970 Le Mans when specifications. So it was in Salzburg livery, a four and a half liter engine, four speed gearbox, short tail. Uh, and I drove that at Silverstone long, long time ago. And the only thing that he was interested in was making sure that I'd really, really driven this thing. Um, and I kept on sort of coming in, he'd lean in, and he'd say, what, what was it like? And I'd go, well, I think this, I think the other. And he'd go, yes, but have you had a proper go yet? And i go, well, I think so. And he said, well, just get out and do so. And, and so we, we, we had Silverstone to ourselves the day back in the day when we could afford to rent such a thing. Um, and yeah, we had to stop and take photographs and that sort of thing. But basically, I drove that car all day at Silverstone. Um, I still think that's probably the greatest thing I've ever done in my career, just because of the amount of time I spent in the car, and because I, you know, although I wasn't doing it in the wet or with all those other lunatics or at a dangerous circuit like Le Mans in the 1970s, I did drive a 917 as fast as I could make it go um, until I, I, I was so tired I really couldn't, you know, think about driving it anymore. So that was uh, amazing. And then much more recently, at the members' meeting two, three years ago, Goodwood. Um, uh, I, uh, yeah, they put me in the 91730. Um, and it, it, it was a strange thing because you think to yourself, oh God, it's got all this power and the car is so old. It, and it's a 970. And you think it's just going to be impossible. It's just going to try and kill me the moment I get out there. And it didn't. It was That was the amazing thing about it. It was so well developed by then. Um, you know, with, with cars like that, you kind of get an instinctive feel almost from the outside as to whether it's going to be on your side or not. And it just was. Um, and you know these were demonstration laps so we weren't allowed to overtake anybody and I had a bloke in a 91710 in front of me who was going terribly slowly so it was it was slightly compromised because I had kind of had to sort of hold back and then you know give myself almost a sort of lap to catch this bloke up again but I did manage to do it and I did manage to within the bounds of what is you know sort of safe and sensible and not taking any risks drive that car as fast as I felt comfortable driving it um it did spin its wheels at about 125, 130 miles an hour down the far end of the Goodwood Strait, uh, approaching turn one, um, which I've got on camera, um, which was um, the most extraordinary feeling. Um, it was fast beyond my abilities to describe, but it wasn't that scary. I wasn't sitting there thinking, I was just sitting there just not being able to believe my luck, being able to get in such a car. I wasn't sitting there thinking, oh God, oh God, oh God, I'm going to crash, I'm going to crash, I'm going to crash. It just wasn't like that at all. It was, um, it was a lovely, lovely car to drive. But that's the thing about great racing cars, isn't it? They have to be drivable. Even for professionals, they have to be relatively approachable. Otherwise, they don't win. No, exactly. Because you can have all the potential in the world, but if the bloke behind the wheel can't exploit it, then you know, there's literally no point. Um, and I think that's what, you know, I think that's what, I think that's the great thing. That's the great, everybody thinks about the 917 and the thing about the 1100 horsepower. It wasn't actually the great achievement of that car was 
the way that um, that Mark Donoghue and Penske developed that car with Porsche to so that it could even back then on the tyres that they had with the turbo technology they had, which was so primitive, it could deploy that power. And that's really where the speed came from. Um, what a thing. What a thing. There you go. Porsche 917, 917, whichever you prefer. Um, yeah. What a heroic car. Sadly, I suspect I'll never get to drive one. Um, never say never. Couple. No. Well, I know. If anyone owns one, get in touch. <laughs> it's a long well, shot. You know, I mean, I, you know, I, I mean, uh, I never thought I'd drive one, and I've driven two. Um, so you know, and I'm a, but I'm a lot older than you. So you know, your time. And you know, and, and the thing with Porsche is they don't, you know, they don't sort of you know put these cars in frames and hang them on walls. They they get them out there. Um, so you know, I would. Well, I, I really hope that you do. Um, mm. We'll see. We Let's hope see. so. Uh, okay. That's the 917, everybody. Uh, please remember to rate and review the podcast. That really does help. It helps us grow, find new listeners, which we like. Hello if you are a new listener. Um, and also, go and download the Intercooler app. Just get to the, go onto the App Store, either App Store. Search the Intercooler. You'll find it there. You can start your free trial. It's, should we just do 30 seconds on what the Intercooler app actually is all about? Um, because it's, yeah. it's a while since we've done that, isn't it? We've built what we think is the best writing team that any title anywhere in the world in, within automotive can, can boast um, about. Apart from us, we've also got Henry Catchpole and Karun Chandok. We've got David Tuig, who's a, a very, very experienced car engineer who writes beautifully. We've got Julian Thompson, who's, again, a very experienced car designer who writes beautifully. Um, and we've got some of the biggest names from what is perhaps the heyday of car journalism, Mel Nichols, Peter Robinson, um, and other guys as well. We, it, it's it's a heck of a lineup, isn't it? It is. Yeah, um, yeah. We've got you know guys like you know Andrew English, who's been writing, who's been the Telegraph's car man for the last twenty five years, and yeah, we got we yeah, we got you know Colin Goodwin, you know our agony aunt, and uh, you know Ben Oliver, who's one of the greatest car columnists um, that there is. We have uh, yeah, we're, we're blessed to have access to these um, these amazing people. Um, and every single day, one of them writes something for us, and we put it on the app um, first thing in the morning. And you know, and, and the idea is is just that it's like a, it's the quality of journalism you might hope to find in a big glossy quarterly publication, and are prepared to wait a quarter of a year for it to turn up. We provide that every day, every single day apart from Sundays. There will be something of that quality, brand new on the app. Um, and yeah, and that's really it. That's the idea behind it. Um, yeah, it's gone very well so far. We're only six months in. Um, you know, we are. You know, don't take our word for it. Go on the app stores, look at the look at the ratings, look at the reviews, um, and you'll see what people think of it. Um, we're terribly proud of it. Um, you know, we can say this because the vast majority of the work on there isn't ours. Um, you know, we just run it and had the idea for it, and um, you know, go and go and have a trial. You know, try it for a month, see what you think. Um, we think you'll hope you'll like it. Yeah, you can start your free trial for a month. Um, it's four ninety nine a month there after forty nine ninety nine for the year. Just go and check it out and let us know what you think. Um, but as ever, we'll be back with another podcast uh, this time next week. Look forward to it. All the best. 